There's a famous saying that comes from a writer named Frederick Marriott. You can't take it with you. And it's true. You can enjoy material wealth while you're alive, but it won't make a difference once you're dead. At least, most of the time it won't. But today's case is unique because I'm profiling a murder victim whose high-end watch revealed a massive web of crime. I'm talking kidnapping, identity theft, embezzlement. And it all fell apart because of one little Rolex. This is the story of international con man Albert Johnson Walker. I'm Ashley Flowers, and this is International Infamy, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm taking you around the world to look at 15 notorious crimes from 15 different countries. Today, we're headed to Canada, but this story ultimately stretches across continents because our subject, Albert Walker, stole so much money, he became one of Interpol's most wanted men. He fled Canada and disappeared for years before authorities finally caught up with him in a place no one expected. I have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It's July 28, 1996, and this father and son fisherman team named John and Craig Kopik are trawling in the English Channel. It's been a pretty disappointing day overall. They're drawing up full nets, but they're filled with fish that are too small or the wrong species, nothing they can sell. John and Craig are a little defeated, but they decide to put the nets down one more time. And finally, they do catch something interesting, but it's not a halibut or a cod. It's a dead body. Now, it's not that unusual for corpses to show up in the English Channel. In fact, a few days earlier, a 20-year-old man disappeared in a boating accident, and the police had been looking for his remains. So John and Craig aren't totally shocked. In fact, they have a little debate. Do they call the police, meaning they'll have to throw out the fish they've caught and end up losing out on a day of work? Or do they toss the body off the boat and just pretend they never saw it? After a bit of back and forth, they agree that they're going to do the right thing. So they radio the authorities. By the time they get back to the docks, the investigators have already cordoned off the pier and they're ready to check out this body. As it turns out, it's a good thing John reported his find because this isn't the missing young man from the boating accident. 
In fact, the corpse belongs to someone who's 40 or older, and he's got a tattoo on his hand that looks kind of like a star or a leaf. That's the only clue police have to determine the corpse's identity. He doesn't have a wallet on him, and his fingerprints aren't on file. So investigators don't have much to work with to determine who this guy is. And that's not the only big question. A medical examiner does an autopsy, and he concludes that the man drowned. But they can't tell if this was an accident or foul play or something else. I mean, he has these bruises and cuts all over his head and body, but it's impossible to tell whether the man was injured before or after he died. There's only one hard piece of evidence in all of this. The dead man is wearing a Rolex. And that might seem inconsequential at first, but this is a much bigger clue than you probably think. For one thing, Rolexes are self-winding, meaning if you're wearing it while you're walking around or moving your arm, it keeps running. The watch only stops if it's totally still for about 45 hours. So the police can look at the day and time that the watch stopped and work backwards from there to determine exactly when this man died. More importantly, the Rolex company keeps really thorough records on its customers. Every watch has a serial number, and the police use that to find the name of the man who owned it, Ronald Platt. So the police go to Ronald's home to see if they can learn anything more about him. Obviously, nobody's home, but the investigators do get to talk to Ronald's landlord. And when they review the paperwork on file, they find out that Ronald is close to a guy named David Davis. They work together, and David was a reference on Ronald's rental application. If anyone can speak to Ronald's mental state and give any insight on whether he might have killed himself or been murdered— It's David. But it'll be tricky to question him because David lives in a small town called Woodham Walter, which is about 50 miles northeast of London. And in some parts of rural England, they don't use standard street addresses. Each house has its own name, and you just kind of need to know where it is if you want to find it. So the police know that David lives in this place called Little London Farm. And they know generally where it is. But when they get to the street, there are two houses that don't have signs. And they're not quite sure which one is David's. So they pick one at random and knock on the door. It's not the right place, but the elderly neighbor who answers tells the police something weird. They say they've never heard of anyone named David Davis. The person who lives at Little London Farm is Ronald Platt as in the man who turned up dead in the English Channel. Except the neighbor assures the police that Ronald is alive. He and his wife have been traveling, but they've definitely been around since the body was found in the Channel. Which is utterly baffling. It's possible that the corpse isn't actually Ronald. Maybe some other man died while wearing his watch. But the police aren't sure. I mean, they know that Ronald hasn't been to his apartment since the body was found. And when you think about it, it doesn't make much sense that he'd rent an apartment anyway if he already had this house at Little London Farm. So the police come up with a theory. They figure there are two different people here going by the same name. And that means that David Davis, the guy at Little London Farm, must have stolen the identity of the real Ronald Platt the one who was found in the English Channel. And if that's true, it opens up some dark possibilities. 
Maybe David killed the real Ronald so nobody would catch on to his crime. So the police track David down for questioning. When they sit down with him, he has an accent, maybe American or Canadian, they can't tell for sure. Either way, he insists that he doesn't know anything about Ronald's death. Like no matter what the police say, he's got an answer ready. For one thing, they know that David owns a yacht. So they asked if David might have taken Ronald out on a boating trip or if Ronald borrowed it or if he had any theories about how Ronald ended up in the channel. But David keeps saying he wasn't anywhere near the boat or the water when Ronald died. But after he leaves, the police check David's phone records and question some eyewitnesses. And they all agree that he was, in fact, on the docks that day. David's lying. By this point, the police have enough evidence to make an arrest. The problem is, they know he could be dangerous, and they want to be careful about bringing him in. So a bunch of armed officers gather outside David's home at about 6.30 a.m. on Halloween Day, 1996. They wait for three hours, but still don't get word from their superiors that it's okay to move. Which is a problem because at 9.30, one of the officers, Detective Sergeant Peter Redman, sees David leaving his house and climbing into a taxi. Even though he's not technically supposed to close in on David, Peter decides to tail the cab. So he pulls down the street, radios the station, and gets permission from a commander to make the arrest. Before you know it, and before any backup even has the chance to arrive, Peter pulls the taxi over and David agrees to come in without any resistance. So, case closed, right? The police have their top suspect in custody. Now, they've just got to get David to confess and they'll be done with the murder case. Except, a full 26 days after the arrest, the police get this bizarre phone call from officials in Switzerland. They saw David's picture in his arrest record, and they think he might be wanted for other international crimes. So the British officials run David's fingerprints, and that's when they realize the man they've just arrested isn't David Davis. He's a Canadian con artist named Albert Walker, And this murder investigation is only the tip of the iceberg. Coming up, we'll meet Albert Walker. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. In 1990, a 44-year-old investment banker named Albert Walker was panicking. Albert was going through a messy divorce with his wife, Barbara, and they were fighting tooth and nail for custody over their four children. Albert is particularly close to his 15-year-old daughter, Sheena. She writes a letter begging to stay with her father. It says, quote, I don't feel that the relationship between my mother and I contains enough love and affection for us to be together on a daily basis. However, my father shows me a lot of affection on a daily basis, and we are very close. 
end quote. Now, this letter strikes Barbara as pretty odd, and she tries to argue that Sheena didn't write it herself. Albert must have coached her on what to say. But she doesn't manage to convince the judge, and Albert wins custody over Sheena and her sister. His two sons have to stay with their mother. So the custody is settled, but Albert's problems are only just beginning. See, for the past decade, he's run a company called Walker Investment Services, where he supposedly invests in the stock market. He also claims that he has offshore accounts where he can hold his clients' money and help them avoid taxes. That might sound suspicious, but Albert insists this is all totally legal, and his clients believe him because Albert has a great reputation. He's involved in his church, he's an affectionate father, and it doesn't hurt that he lives in a small Canadian town where people tend to know and trust one another. There's nothing weird about him at all. But all of his success is built on a lie. Albert doesn't have any offshore bank accounts. He's not making the investments he says he is. In fact, he's been pocketing his clients' cash for years. So far, he's managed to fly under the radar. But Barbara's lawyers are asking to see the records of his assets, and he knows he won't be able to hide his embezzlement much longer. So with his family falling apart and his scheme about to be exposed, Albert decides he only has one choice. He needs to flee the country. He empties more than a million dollars out of his bank account, packs up his car, and tells Barbara that he's going on a ski trip. But instead of hitting the slopes, he drives straight to the airport and boards a flight out of the country on December 5th, 1990. Now, he never calls Barbara to tell her where he's gone. From his wife's point of view, it's like Albert has just vanished off the face of the earth. Even worse, until this point, Barbara hasn't known anything about Albert's embezzlement. So while she's wondering what happened to her husband, she starts noticing that money has vanished from the family's bank accounts. Then she gets a slew of phone calls from angry customers whose retirement savings have been wiped out. And then police start knocking on her door. But Barbara doesn't know anything. Albert's too good at covering up his tracks. I mean, just look at his escape plan. In the course of a few days, he flies to the UK, then to Switzerland, then to France, and finally back to England. Along the way, he buys other plane tickets he never uses, all to throw investigators off his trail. And it works. He actually ends up settling down in a rural British town where he starts living under an assumed name, and nobody seems any the wiser. And this is pretty bold on his part. If the British police realize who he is, Albert could be extradited to Canada. But he's got to figure he's not going to get caught because he looks like the model of good citizenship. He even finds a new wife. Or that's what he says when he introduces people to his newlywed wife, a woman in her late teens or early 20s named Noelle. Naturally, their two-and-a-half-decade age gap raises some eyebrows, but Albert explains that he's an old friend of Noelle's father, and that seems to satisfy most people. But behind the scenes, a lot of people think Albert is pretty controlling of his wife, and even kind of creepy. I mean, Noelle doesn't know how to drive, and she refuses to learn. Like, she almost seems worried that Albert will get angry if she gets a license. 
Beyond that, Albert has a habit of making really sexual comments about Noel in inappropriate situations. One time, he even shows a coworker a picture he took of Noel in the shower. So there's definitely something odd going on there. But most people figure Noel's an adult, she can take care of herself. And regardless of what the neighbors think, Albert and Noel seem committed to one another. And before long, they have two daughters. It's kind of like Albert's got a fresh start in a new country with a new name, new wife, and new children. His old life back in Canada is totally over. But one thing hasn't changed. He's still running scams. One of his weirdest cons happens when he opens a counseling business and tries to get himself licensed as a therapist, even though he doesn't have the proper training. His plan only falls apart because his coworkers, who are real therapists, refuse to go along with it. But he has more luck with another scheme. It starts in early 1991 when Albert hires a woman named Elaine Boys to be his secretary. He tells her he's a very wealthy banker from Vermont, apparently so she won't suspect he's really Canadian, and he wants her to help him move some money around. Elaine is supposed to open a bunch of accounts in her own name, then deposit Albert's money and spend it on artwork or antiques or property or whatever else he tells her to buy. The arrangement is all a bit odd, but Albert tells Elaine he's going through a divorce and he's trying to protect his business income from his ex-wife's lawyers. That still sounds pretty shady, but Elaine wants to trust Albert, so she goes along with it. And because she's so cooperative, Albert finds other ways to take advantage of Elaine's gullibility, particularly once he gets to know Elaine's boyfriend, Ronald Platt. Keep in mind, by this time, Albert knows he can't stay in the same place with the same identity for too long. Eventually, he's going to need to steal someone else's name and records, and Ronald is the perfect mark. He's very trusting and even agrees to start a TV repair business with Albert almost immediately after they meet. Ronald doesn't even wonder why a rich banker would want to do television repair. And he also doesn't notice when Albert starts embezzling money from their business. In other words, Ronald is so trusting and so gullible, he's the perfect target. Eventually, Albert finds out that Ronald has always dreamed of living in Canada. He actually grew up there and has these fond childhood memories, so it's sort of a lifelong goal for him to relocate. He even has a tattoo of a Canadian maple leaf on his hand. So for Christmas, Albert gives Elaine and Ronald one-way plane tickets so they can resettle there. Ronald never asks why Albert wants him out of the country. He just falls for the con, hook, line, and sinker. Before he leaves the country, he even gives Albert a copy of his birth certificate and his driver's license, which Albert says he needs for some kind of vague business reasons. In short, this is the perfect crime. Albert can keep living the good life in England while Ronald is half a world away. The police aren't likely to notice that there are two people using the same identity since they're on totally different continents. There's no chance anyone's going to catch on to his scam. Or at least, almost no chance. But three years after the move to Canada, Ronald decides to come back home to England and basically right into Albert's backyard. Apparently, he broke up with Elaine and he wanted to get a fresh start. Obviously, this is a huge problem for Albert. 
If there are two Ronald Platts walking around in the same country, someone's bound to notice. So he's got to stop the real Ronald from settling back home. Which may be why Albert proposes that they go on a fishing trip together. It turns out Ronald hates boating, but Albert's very persuasive. Eventually, Ronald gives in, and on July 20th, 1996, they board Albert's yacht and head out into the English Channel. After that, Ronald is never seen alive again. Albert probably assumes he's committed the perfect crime. Nobody's going to notice that Ronald is missing since he's only recently moved back to England and hasn't put down roots or anything. By the time anyone thinks to investigate, all the evidence that could implicate Albert will be long gone. And for three months, it seems like he gets away with it. Police are struggling to identify Ronald's body just as Albert had hoped. And even once they track Albert down for questioning, he plays it cool and they let him go. Albert doesn't have any reason to think they're closing in on him. That is, until Halloween, when his taxi is pulled over. Even after his arrest, Albert doesn't seem that worried that he's facing murder charges. For one thing, there's no actual evidence that Ronald has even been murdered. It's still possible that he just fell off the boat in an accident. And given how good Albert is at telling people what they want to hear, he might figure he can still talk himself out of the situation. Except there's one factor he's not in control over. His wife, Noelle. The police decide to take her into custody in case she knows anything. The problem is their children are very young. I'm talking a baby and a three-year-old. And Noelle doesn't have anyone else to watch the kids. So she convinces the investigators to let her take her children to the station with them. And then the officers wait patiently while Noelle packs a diaper bag and putters around the house. It's kind of weird, like she doesn't seem to have any real sense of urgency. Maybe she knew this was coming. Finally, she says she's ready to go. But before she can get out the door, one of the officers asks to check her diaper bag. And inside, she finds thousands of pounds in cash and a few bars of gold. Naturally, the police assume that Noelle's helping her husband run this scam. And who knows, maybe she's an accomplice in the murder too. But unfortunately, Noelle doesn't seem to have much information. She says she doesn't know anything about Albert's boating trip with Ronald. She also doesn't know where he got the money that she was trying to sneak out of their house. But she does know something. One officer asks her something about her husband, and Noelle insists Albert isn't her husband. She says, he's my father. Coming up, the truth about Albert's relationship with his daughter. Now back to the story. It turns out when Albert skipped out on his wife, Barbara, he didn't leave alone he took his 15-year-old daughter, Sheena, with him. And when he started living as David Davis with his very young spouse, Noelle, that was Sheena. It's not clear why they were posing as a couple, but once the news breaks, reporters all across the world are instantly fascinated with Albert's story. It's got everything. Theft, life on the run, murder, alleged sexual abuse, and incest. 
Sheena won't say who her children's biological father is, and she flat out refuses to submit to a paternity test. And when journalists ask Albert about it, he tries to shrug it off. He says that Sheena got pregnant and he pretended to be her husband to save her the embarrassment of being an unmarried teenage mother. But if that's true, he went way too far with the cover story. Let's not forget about the way Albert used to brag about his sex life and how hot his young wife was, or the nearly nude photograph he has of her. Whatever the truth is, the media is having a field day with this case. And all of Albert's friends and family members in England and Canada are getting sucked into it, whether they want to be or not. Take Sheena's mother, Barbara. For the past six years, she's had no idea where her daughter was or if she was okay. All she knows is Sheena disappeared the same day as Albert, and she can assume that means they're together and safe, but she still wants some kind of sign that her daughter's alive. For years, she gives as many interviews as she can, but a missing person and embezzlement story just doesn't sell papers. She speaks to reps from TV shows like Unsolved Mysteries and America's Most Wanted, and both programs flat out ignore her. But now that Albert is under arrest and his sordid story is getting out, everything changes. Suddenly, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, news vans line up on Barbara's street. She can't set foot outside without photographers and reporters mobbing her. The coverage is just as intense in the UK, and it reaches a fever pitch on June 22, 1998, when Albert goes to trial for Ronald Platt's murder. Every day, dozens of journalists pack themselves into the courtroom. And there are so many more camped outside, Albert has to pull his jacket over his head just to get a shred of privacy as he comes and goes. At one point, he quips that he'll let the photographers get a good picture if they pay him 2,000 pounds. But the other witnesses aren't in a joking mood, especially not Sheena. She makes it clear that she just wants to be left alone. But reporters keep reaching out and asking her these really personal questions, like whether Albert is the father of her children or if she actually helped him commit his crimes. It's like they don't see her as a victim. They want to make her seem complicit. Sheena flat out refuses every interview request. Most people assume she doesn't want any public attention or scrutiny or fame, which is why it's so shocking when she testifies. On the stand, Sheena insists that she wasn't involved in the murder at all. She knew her father went sailing on the day of Ronald's death, and she helped him clean up the boat afterward. But she didn't see any evidence that anyone had died on board. And that was it. But she does have one massive bombshell to drop. She tells the court that after his arrest, Albert actually called her from prison and coached her on how to testify. And if that isn't a smoking gun, I don't know what is. Not that the prosecutors need to rely on Sheena's testimony. They also have GPS data that puts Albert's boat near the scene of Ronald's murder, as well as an anchor that the fisherman pulled up with Ronald's body. They think the killer used it to sink his corpse based on some marks and bruises from the autopsy. And they've got a receipt that proves Albert bought the exact same anchor a few days before the murder. Based on this overwhelming evidence, the jury only needs to deliberate for two hours before they come back with their verdict. 
guilty. Albert is sentenced to life in prison, which means Ronald Platt and his loved ones get to see justice served. But Albert still left a lot of other victims in his wake, starting with his family. The only way Sheena can get away from the constant media barrage is to relocate to this small town in Ontario, Canada. She lives as private of a life as she can with her kids and pretty much refuses to ever talk to anyone about her father, even to her closest friends. And since Sheena isn't talking to reporters, for the most part, the media frenzy dies down after Albert gets sentenced. The case is far from closed. The police still haven't recovered a lot of the money Albert stole. They can't even figure out how much he spent and how much is left, never mind where he socked it away. If there was more public outrage, they might have had the resources to keep looking. But embezzlement just doesn't sell papers like murder and alleged incest do. The Canadian courts do the best they can. They have Albert extradited back home, and in 2007, he gets another five years tacked on to his sentence for his financial crimes. He is still in prison as of this recording. The ironic thing is, Albert might have never gotten caught if he'd thought to remove Ronald's watch. If police hadn't been able to identify Ronald's body, they'd have never picked up the thread of identity theft, and they would have never given David Davis, a.k.a. Albert Walker, a second look. But that minuscule oversight made his entire plan unravel. After years of embezzlement and scams, Albert was betrayed by the one thing he dedicated his life to, material wealth. Thanks for listening. Next week, I'll be back with another stop on our True Crime World Tour. And if you want to hear more, you can find all episodes of International Infamy for free on Spotify. International Infamy was co-created by Max Cutler and Ashley Flowers and is a Spotify original from Parcast starring Ashley Flowers. It's executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of International Infamy was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and Drew Cole, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Chelsea Wood. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out Crime Junkie and all AudioChuck originals. Chuck Originals.